You are listening to the Forgotten News Podcast. But before we begin, here are a few words about a couple of other podcasts that we think you might want to try. Hey everybody, I'm Pete, the host of Reel of Thieves. It's a show where we go over all the references, riffs, and history of your favorite stuff. Maybe it's a new movie, or a classic one, or one your friend is making you watch, but odds are they're referencing or stealing something from somewhere else. We'll break down historical movements, why things are the way they are, and show you that taking something from somewhere else isn't actually a bad thing. Because art is theft, and the best artists are the coolest thieves. Real of Thieves, available everywhere you listen to your favorite podcasts. Hey, random podcast listener, I'm Jillian. And I'm Izzy. We want to introduce our new lifestyle podcast, Toxic Positivity. Toxic Positivity is a teen lifestyle podcast embracing the best and worst parts of adolescence in the 21st century. We will cover a lot of topics from stress and high school to discovering your sexuality and saving the environment. Listen to new episodes every other Friday. Follow us on Instagram at toxicpositivity.podcast. Bye! Welcome to the Forgotten News Podcast. This is your window to hear true stories from long ago. Stories that once made headlines. Stories that people thought would be unforgettable. Yet those stories were soon lost in the sands of time or were buried deep in the dustbin of history. In this podcast, we shake off the sand and dust from those stories and share them here with you as fresh as the day they were first told. And now, here's your hosts. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Episode 60 of the Forgotten News Podcast. This is Jim. Hi, this is Kit. Hey, guys. This is Jessica. Thank you so very much for taking the time to listen. And with that in mind, let's just get started. Because after all, you have set aside this part of your day to hear this episode. So here we go. First things first, we have a very exciting announcement. Drum roll, please. As of this month, the Forgotten News podcast has reached a milestone of over 100,000 downloads since the launch of this show way back in July 2017. So we want to take a quick moment to thank all of you for your support and also for those of you who follow this podcast on Facebook, or Twitter. And we especially want to thank you, not only for listening to our episodes, but also for all of your kind comments, feedback, reviews, and messages. It really means a lot. So again, we just want to say thank you. Because, seriously... By no stretch of the imagination, back in 2017, did we ever expect to hit 100,000 downloads. But, here we are. (laughs) So, yeah, it's pretty wild. By the way, we want to clarify something that we occasionally get questions about. I said a little earlier that this is episode 60. But if you look on Apple Podcasts or most other podcast platforms, 
it will appear that we have a lot more than 60. Well, that is because we don't number our mini-episodes or our specials, such as, for example, our Christmas episode. And speaking of episodes, we are definitely looking forward to creating and releasing new episodes for all of you lovely, lovely people out there. And we hope that all of you will continue to listen. Listeners, we hope that you are just as excited and happy as we are. Now, we know that a lot of other podcasts would celebrate this type of thing by recording while drunk or something like that. But instead, we have decided to simply bring you a really good story. And it will be told by two really good storytellers. They were on our show once before, a few months ago, Wendy and Beth of the Fruit Loops True Crime Podcast. Now, moving on. Listeners, as you probably already know, this month, February, is Black History Month. So, you will be hearing a story that is not only relevant, but very, very unusual. Now, as always, we will begin with a short advisory so you can decide for yourself if you want to continue to listen or not. Our featured story revolves around a racially charged murder that happened in Columbus, Ohio in 1902 and its aftermath. Hence, there will be a short description of graphic violence in regard to that incident. So, if you are of a nervous or sensitive disposition or get frightened easily, we advise you calmly but sincerely to simply turn off this episode now. In addition, the story that is being featured is definitely not recommended for young children since it could be upsetting or scary for young ears. Listener discretion is strongly advised. So, with all that having been said, on with the show. Hello, everyone. We are Wendy and Beth. I'm Wendy. She's Beth. And together we host Fruit Loops Serial Killers of Color. (laughs) And we are honored to have been asked by our friends over at Forgotten News Podcast to tell you a little story. Yeah. About Jackson Williams. Or no. There's somebody named Jackson and there's somebody named Williams and there's a murder and a news story about it. And we are going to get into it. First, I'd just like to say happy Black History Month to everybody listening. Yeah. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Very cool. Okay, let's do this. Now, our story begins in the year 1900 in Roanoke, Virginia, with a young Andrew Jackson. Not that, but a different (laughs) Andrew Jackson, a black man who was employed under the predatory sharecropping system by a white plantation owner in which enslaved people at one time were held captive. So let us go back in time. (laughs) (laughs) After chattel slavery was abolished, many Black Americans found themselves homeless and unemployed. Some were forced to return to their previous slave quarters because they had no resources to live or to work. The people who had previously held them captive and owned those quarters, um, some people say slaveholders, but I want to give more context in that, then rented the land that they owned to the formerly enslaved peoples at extremely high costs, forcing them into crippling debt that would last for generations. Now, back to Andrew Jackson. Hmm. 
According to multiple newspaper reports, Jackson and the daughter of the white plantation owner where he sharecropped became romantically involved with each other, and this attraction soon evolved into a serious but secret relationship. In other words, they had fallen in love. In love. It's February is also a time for love. Yeah. Uh, and black history. <laughs> I love this story already. Now, uh, this relationship was not just taboo. It was actually illegal in Virginia, where this story takes place. Interracial relationships in the United States at the time were very complicated and ranged from romantic love to rape. Not only that, but even just allegations of a black man being romantically involved with a white woman could get that man killed. It was not very long prior to this story that enslaved people were considered property. Some slaveholders frequently and systematically raped black enslaved women with impunity for breeding, for punishment, for their own sadistic pleasure, and to assert power and dominance. Young boys, young girls, and even grown men were also raped under the system of chattel slavery. Fun times. <laughs> not. <laughs> no, not. No, no, no. Taking all that into consideration, it is a little ironic that at the time of our story, the prevailing narrative was that black men had insatiable animalistic sexual appetites and that white women needed to be protected from it. But it wasn't just romantic relationships that were governed by the white folks. All interracial interactions had unwritten rules of racial etiquette, also called Jim Crow etiquette. This racial etiquette governed the actions, manners, attitudes, and words of all Black people when in the presence of white people. To violate this racial etiquette placed one's very life and the lives of one's family at risk. If the actions of a Black person were not in the service of a white person, it was not acceptable. For example, it was okay for a Black man to drive a white woman in a car, and it was was okay for a black woman to clean a white family's home. However, it was not okay for a black person to look a white person in the eye, and a black male could not even offer his hand to shake hands wow. with a white male because it implied being socially equal. Can't have that. No, can't have that. Mm -mm. Mm -mm. <laughs> black people and white people could not even play checkers together. And if a black person and a white person were walking on the same sidewalk, it was the black person's responsibility to get off the sidewalk or face fines or jail time. Wild. So signs were often posted equating black people with animals, such as Negroes and dogs not allowed. Oh, jeez. Yeah, it's an ugly yeah. history, but we yeah. got to talk about it. Now, the whole intent of this Jim Crow etiquette boiled down to one simple rule. Black people must at all times demonstrate their inferiority to white people by actions, words, and manners. Virginia, where this story takes place, was a part of the American South where interracial romantic relationships were illegal. Although, of course, white men were still able to attack and rape black women and girls whenever they felt like it. Oh, my God. But the law in Virginia flatly prohibited marriage between black people and white people. Yeah, and that's true until the 1960s when the yeah. loving decision was, I think that was a Supreme Court decision. That, yeah, it um, wasn't in, that long ago. So yeah. not. Yeah, exactly. It really, This really is an ancient history. Mm -mm. <laughs> so for all of those reasons, the relationship between Andrew Jackson and the plantation owner's daughter was kept secret as both parties understood the world that they lived in and that the potential consequences for their relationship meant Jackson's death by an angry mob of white racists or perhaps by legal execution. So the couple decided that they needed to leave the South to protect their romance and their lives. So they did. They left Virginia and kept going until they reached the state of Ohio, where they settled in the city of Columbus and got married. They rented a small house in a neighborhood called Hickory Alley and moved in. However, this was not the end of the story for this couple. First, it did not take long for the white plantation owner to find out exactly what had happened with his daughter and Mr. Jackson. I'm sorry, Miss Jackson. Ooh, I am for real. Uh, so it is unknown how he found out, but he did. And you're not going to believe this, but he was angry. What? <laughs> well, yes, girl. Red hot angry. In fact, he was so angry, it's a surprise that his hair didn't catch on fire. Aruga! <laughs> He immediately alerted local law enforcement authorities who soon realized that they could do nothing because the couple had left the state. So they asked to speak to the manager. Uh-oh. <laughs> Pull the Karen. <laughs> and contacted the governor of Virginia, James Tyler, and informed him of what had happened. 
Governor Tyler sent a demand to the governor of Ohio, George Nash, asking for Jackson and the young woman to be extradited back to Virginia. You know, and by the way, the slogan for Virginia, Virginia is for lovers, uh, I believe, is the state uh, yeah, motto. Right. But n- not not these two. Not these mm-hmm. lovers. No, ma'am. <laughs> uh, Governor Nash reviewed the paperwork, then promptly denied the request on the very reasonable basis that the couple had gotten legally married in Ohio. Hence, they were legally entitled to be left alone. By the way, it's probably worth mentioning that the name of the young woman was never once revealed in any news article, and her identity appears to be completely unknown. But it appears that this marriage was very often not necessarily happy, not full of bliss. No. Uh, According to the Columbus Dispatch, a daily newspaper based in Columbus, Ohio, Jackson, quote, was well known to the police, having been arrested several times for beating his wife, unquote. Back then, it was not necessarily a crime for a man to beat his wife. Women's rights were pretty limited. Yeah. I should put a very in there. (laughs) Yeah, very very limited. Yes. Yes, Not just limited, but very limited. (laughs) I have to think then that to be arrested for it, it would have had to have been pretty bad. Or perhaps Mm. the penalties were harsher because the man's wife happened to be white. In any case, this is where our story really begins. This article was published on Monday, June 23rd, 1902, which, by the way, is about 37 or some changed years after the Emancipation Proclamation um, and after the Civil War and a couple decades after Reconstruction failed. And by now we're well into the establishment of Jim Crow laws and black codes. But we are comfortable in assuming that the writer and editors of this article uh, were entirely white and most likely all male. Yeah, yeah. Actually, uh, let's step that back. The story really begins the day before on June 22nd, a Sunday morning. Mm. The Black church is a significant part of Black American survival, safety, spirituality, history, and life. Malcolm X said the most segregated hour in the United States is at high noon on Sunday. Mm. And it's likely that the vast majority of Black people in Columbus were in church. However... Andrew Jackson was not one of them. (gasps) No, no. Mm. What's that you say? Instead, he was sitting at a table in the backyard of a saloon on North 3rd Street. This was a street known as the Badlands. It was located on the edge of a nearly all-Black neighborhood. The Badlands had dive bars, gambling houses, brothels, opium dens, mm, and other similar types of recreation for doing drugs. (laughs) On this Sunday morning at 9 a.m., Jackson and two friends, Rose Gilmore and George Brown, were in the Badlands sharing a pitcher of beer behind Fred Smith's saloon. Suddenly, a man named Charles Williams came over to the table and wanted to join in the libations. Williams was a complete stranger to Jackson and his friends. Jackson and his friends were not interested in kikiing with Williams. You all know what kikiing means, you know, hanging out, having a good time uh, with Williams. And they made their sentiments clear to Williams. They told him to get to step in, uh, which means go away, and advised they would not be sharing any of their beer. Nevertheless, Williams persisted. Perhaps he had too much to drink, but in any case, Williams was unwilling to leave. Quote, this intrusion was resented by Jackson and the others, and a quarrel arose, unquote, including snide name-calling that became increasingly hostile. Unfortunately, the little group did not know that Williams was a man with a very bad temper whenever he didn't get his way. And this was one of those times. Even worse, he was being dissed and he was not having it. William suddenly pulled out a switchblade knife with a sharp three-inch blade. He then slashed Jackson across the abdomen deeply enough to almost disembowel him. Oh my God. One of my favorite words in the English language, (laughs) disembowel him. Oh, jeez. Jackson, oh yes, fell against the back wall of the saloon, grasping his bleeding stomach with both hands, attempting to keep his intestines within his body. Yikes. Uh Uh-huh. Meanwhile, an angry mob of about 75 black people, including both of his companions, began chasing after Williams, who'd run off almost immediately after he'd cut Jackson's stomach. A few people stayed behind to render medical aid to Jackson. 
An ambulance was called and he was quickly transported to Protestant Hospital. Fortunately, he did not lose consciousness, so he was able to give a clear description of the chain of events that led to his injuries. But unfortunately, Jackson passed away soon afterward due to the severity of his wounds. In the meantime, the chase after Charles Williams, which, as you might recall, was a mob of about 75 black people, had gone far beyond the Badlands and went up and down several nearby streets until it ultimately led onto High Street. This was and still is the main street in Columbus. And so the chase prompted, quote, a great deal of excitement among the church going crowds, unquote. Hey, what's going on out there? <laughs> uh, <laughs> hang on, Pastor. And this is almost like a cartoon. They're running down the street. <laughs> down another <Yeah>. street. <laughs> There's music playing. Yeah. People popping their heads out. Uh, so there were frequent shouts in the frenzied crowd, quote, for a rope in order to string him up on the nearest telephone pole. In addition, quote, bricks and rocks were freely used in the pursuit, unquote. However, a police detective, Richard Owens, a white man, as black people were not allowed to be police officers, suddenly noticed the crowd and the commotion while he was riding a streetcar along High Street on his way to work at police headquarters. He jumped off the car and then caught up to Williams after some people in the crowd shouted to Owens as to what had happened. Others warned him that Williams still had his knife and for him to be very careful since he had already attempted to stab or slash anyone who had gotten close to him. No sooner had the detective been warned, Williams pulled out his knife and attempted to slash Owens in the same way he had attacked Jackson. Detective Owens moved away from Williams just in time, then, quote, gave him a stinging blow to the jaw and Williams fell to the street. (laughs) Stinging blow. Yikes. (laughs) I'm picturing it like the Matrix. Like he (laughs) went back. (laughs) (laughs) Quote, Owens took advantage of this outcome to put handcuffs on him before he could stand up. Unquote. But, quote, at this point, the mob became so violent that the detective was compelled to move Williams into Hatton's drugstore to await arrival of the patrol wagons, unquote. However, the newspaper, the Cleveland Plain Dealer, gave a very different description of the specific event that had finally stopped Williams. Quote, a member of the mob, armed with a billiard cue, hit Williams over the head, knocking him to the ground and without doubt saving the life of Owens, who was unarmed, unquote. What kind of police is unarmed yeah. in this day and age? It, what? Well, I don't believe that story for one second. In that day and age. <laughs> okay. All right. <laughs> yeah, very different story there yeah. from the Cleveland yeah. plain dealer. Mm-hmm. They're, they're plain dealers. Ah, <laughs> oh, nail on the head. <laughs> Officer Mike O'Rourke came to Owens' assistance, and Williams was taken to the city jail. At this point, Williams submitted to arrest by Owens and O'Rourke, evidently to avoid retribution by the mob. He later claimed that he had been assaulted by Jackson and his friends, and that the only reason he used his knife was in self-defense after they had attacked him. According to the Columbus Dispatch, Williams was a stranger in Columbus, and hardly any of the regular patrons of the Badlands knew him. Exactly where he came from is unknown. However, according to a few acquaintances, he had arrived in Ohio from somewhere in the South, um, perhaps a member of the Great Migration, wherein Black people left the South in pursuit of economic opportunities and also to flee uh, racial terror in the South. And he had been working in a stone quarry for the previous three weeks in the village of Marble Cliff, about six miles north of Columbus. Williams was described as quote-unquote vicious-looking by the same article, an animalistic racist characterization unsurprising given the source. (laughs) Gotta call it what it is. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Further, they said, quote, he does not appear to care what the outcome of his rash act will be, unquote. Now, there are several articles in newspapers across Ohio and elsewhere which stated that Detective Owens had rescued Williams just as he was about to be lynched from a telephone pole by the crowd. However, that did not happen. Uh, Several people in the crowd had made verbal threats of lynching, but that was as far as it went, verbal threats. Uh, And we should note that although Black people may not have been seen as fully human at the time or in the context of the articles published at the time, human beings often fall prey to mob think or mob mentality. Yeah. Um, 
which is also called herd mentality, which describes, you know, how human beings adopt behaviors, you know, buying merchandise, following trends, or even lynching somebody uh, based on their circle of influence. Um, so it can explain how an individual's point of view can be easily altered by those around them. Just right. wanted to mention that. It should also be noted that lynching of the American kind is when a mob of usually white people violently and viciously string up the body of a human being. The mob mentality coupled with white supremacy and American violence made the event acceptable in the sight of white men, white women, and even children present. Sometimes at these lynchings, souvenirs of body parts of the most often Black person were sold during the event, uh, and photographs were taken and sent to loved ones across the USA as postcards. Yeah, it's mm. ridiculous um, and horrific. Yeah. Um, black, black people and any allies of um, Black people in the Black struggle were forced to watch to teach them to learn their place and prevent them from acting outside of the parameters of the social order established by the dominant white caste. Charles Williams was charged with murder almost as soon as it was learned that Jackson had died. He was put on trial, found guilty, and sent to the Ohio Penitentiary in 1903. We have no idea what happened to him. There's no trace of him after that. The story of this murder was reported in newspapers across the United States, but particularly in the Midwest, because of the unusual chain of events as well as the aftermath. But there is a small, strange twist in those news stories, and here it is. Now, according to Jackson and his friends, the main event which led to the murder was the fact that Jackson refused to give Williams a glass of beer from the pitcher that was on the table. This is the fact that was reported in the newspapers in Columbus, which was the city where the murder occurred. However, in nearly every news article that was published elsewhere, other than Columbus, it was reported that the murder occurred after Jackson had refused to give Williams a sip from a can of beer that he was drinking. Even a book published in 2019 called Lynching and Mob Violence in Ohio by David and Elise Myers says that the incident was the result of Williams asking for a sip from a can of beer and being denied by Jackson. So, was it a pitcher or a can? Who knows? Well, actually, <laughs> hang on. Both things might be true. Sort of. And here's why that is. So, in present day, a pitcher of beer is served in a glass container that usually holds between 30 to 60 ounces of liquid. However, back in the late 19th and early 20th century, a pitcher of beer was served in a metal can. That's hmm. outrageous. That held either half a gallon or a full <laughs> gallon. So I, I'm imagining a gardening can, like, with a spout and everything. <laughs> <laughs> Fill her up. Uh, a half gallon or full gallon. So yeah, it's a if, lot. Uh, yeah, a lot. If any of the witnesses happened to say the word can instead of the word pitcher, then it is easy to see why there was some mistaken reporting at the time. Yeah. Now, listeners, we are going to circle back to the beginning of our story. You'll remember we told you the exciting adventure of the young black man and the white plantation owner's daughter who'd fallen in love and ran away together from Roanoke, Virginia. The, uh, what is the, it? The, 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 <laughs> Virginia is for lovers. For lovers, yeah. not these two. Not these so two. they went to Ohio. They ran away from On this. purpose. Yeah. <laughs> to Columbus, Ohio. Yeah. Ohio. <laughs> I don't know anything about Ohio. <laughs> But that's where they went. And let me tell you, girl. So uh, how Governor Nash of Ohio had bravely and clearly saved them from being forced to return. However, there happens to be a little bit of mystery in regard to that tale. Specifically, because it might not be true. Here is what we actually know to be true. In June of 1902, in the aftermath of the murder of Andrew Jackson, there were numerous newspapers across the country but especially within the state of Ohio, who reported the story of the murder. Mm -hmm. And nearly every article ended by telling about Jackson and the plantation owner's daughter and that this incident had been a huge deal at the time that it occurred. Most newspapers, including the Cleveland Plain Dealer, called it a celebrated case, quote unquote. Uh, this is an old timey phrase. See? Uh, <laughs> a celebrated case, see? <laughs> That means it had been widely publicized at the time. Why, yada. Uh, however, <laughs> I got to stop. I'm sorry. 
However, the facts of this story were heavily investigated by Jim from the Forgotten News podcast and Paula Slice from the Ohio Mysteries podcast, and they could find absolutely no mention of Jackson or the extradition issue at any time during the term of Governor Nash in any newspaper or anywhere in Ohio or Virginia, except after the murder. So did it happen? Perhaps it did. After all, we know for a fact that the murder did happen and that Charles Williams actually went to prison for killing Jackson. So possibly the story of the runaway interracial couple was simply oral history among those who knew them. But that somehow, since it's so celebrated, never got into the newspaper (laughs) at the time that it happened. So that is the best answer that we have. Otherwise, who knows? So what do you think of this story, Beth? Well, I thought it was interesting how often the story dipped into equating Black people to animals. First, that's how white people thought of Black people at the time. Then we get into the story of Jackson running away with the white plantation owner's daughter, which, of course, did not end well, Mm -hmm. um, so they say, because white people did not want other white people to think that this kind of story ever ends well. Oh, no. Mm -mm. (laughs) Why even mention the wife beating otherwise, you know? Right, yeah. And then the story of how the argument and the murder took place over a sip of beer from a can mm-hmm. who demands a sip of beer from someone else's beer can and then kills somebody over it. I well, don't know. An animal, of course. Of course, <laughs> yes. Then there's the cartoonish image of the black mob running through town only to be calmed by the white man. Yeah. Ugh. Get out of here with this. <laughs> Ugh. I agree. Now, we say the news is racist on Fruit Loops for a reason, because it is. Now, there is, from what I, my impression is similar to yours, that there was a a lack of humanity, lack of context to the prevailing narrative at the time, which maybe it couldn't be told, like you said, because it would have made white folks entirely too uncomfortable. Just imagine the school board meetings if full context (laughs) and nuance had been given to this story. (laughs) The, The white savior vibes were obvious to me and spoiler alert, I'm not here for it uh, with a white savior narrative. No, thank you. So I'm glad we got the opportunity to look into, learn about, and tell this particular story. And hopefully listeners who hear the story as we told it will like our take, but also consider how from now on they read or listen to news in the future with maybe a more critical eye or ear and ask, you know, who's telling this story? Right. Where is the humanity or cultural competence and how are the humans and events described in the story and and where's the context, et cetera, et cetera. Also, uh, one more thought, a full gallon of beer. This, (laughs) this, now this was before prohibition. So after I thought of that fact and knowing that eight years later and gallons of beer later, the U.S. would have said no more booze for nobody. Uh, (laughs) I just thought that was interesting. They were serving gallons of beer. Gallons of beer. Yeah. Sign Uh, me up. (laughs) Yeah. Sign me up. No wonder it led to prohibition. So, uh, Anyway, uh, I was going to add a happy Black History Month. Black History, remember, Black History is world history and American history. So get into it. Yeah. And um, where can the people find us, Beth? Our website is fruitloopspod.com and we use Fruit Loops Pod for all of our social media. This has been fun. So yeah. until next time, look alive, y'all. It's crazy out there. And that brings us to the end of our featured story. We hope that it was an interesting experience for you, because it was definitely a wild ride, with a lot of totally unexpected twists and turns. Listeners, I will mention a noteworthy fact that wasn't mentioned in the story. Okay, if you take a close look at the original newspaper stories about the murder, there are a lot of details about all sorts of things, but you will learn almost nothing about the victim, Mr. Jackson. There is no mention of his age or 
his occupation, or literally anything except for things that put him in a bad light. Evidently, it's just one more thing that we can chalk up to the racism of that era. So, anyway, I don't think I have anything else to add. But before we move on, Jim, Jessica, and I would like to express our deepest thanks to our wonderfully talented guest narrators, Wendy and Beth from the Fruit Loops True Crime Podcast, for their excellent presentation of the featured story on this episode. You definitely brought the story to life. Absolutely. We cannot thank you enough. Thank you, thank you. Okay, listeners, we will now move on to the latest edition of our regular segment, Police Blotter and Court News. Now, if you are a newcomer to our podcast, This is a segment in which we tell you about small-time crooks and the punishment they received, as printed in local newspaper columns from 100 or more years ago. Now, this particular police blotter segment on this episode will be narrated for you exactly as it was written by an unknown reporter in a column published in the Tampa Weekly Tribune on July 17th, 1894. Oh, by the way, a year later, the Tribune became a daily newspaper, which unfortunately went out of business in the year 2016. Now, Before we share this particular police blotter column, we will mention a few things that we think are important for you to know, just for context. First, these are the true stories of ordinary people who did something that got them arrested and then put in front of a judge. Next, Please keep in mind that one dollar in 1894 is the equivalent of $37 in the present day. So, if the amount of a fine seems low to you, it really isn't. Basically, it's like this. One dollar had a lot more purchasing power in the 19th century than it does in the present day. Finally, Just as a warning, we will mention that this particular police blotter segment will include mentions of assault, theft, burglary, and the unlawful killing of an animal. So, if any of those things might trigger a negative emotional reaction, please simply jump ahead to approximately seven minutes from now, give or take a few minutes, and it will all be over. In addition, we do not recommend this segment for children, since there are some portions which might be upsetting or disturbing for young years. Now, with all of that having been said, here we go. Police blotter and court news. Order in the court. Criminal Court, Hillsborough County, Tampa, Florida, July 16th, 1894. The Criminal Court of Record convened at 10 o'clock on Monday morning, and the following cases were heard and disposed of. A. A. Cerency was charged with embezzlement and forgery. 
He pled guilty and was given a sentence of six months on each count at hard labor in the county jail. Edward Devane was also charged with embezzlement. However, the charges against him were dismissed by the prosecutor. T.H. Hartman was charged with trespassing. He was found guilty and was given a sentence of 30 days at hard labor in the county jail. James Clements was charged with receiving stolen goods. He was found not guilty and released. W.C. Green was charged with aggravated assault. He was convicted and given a fine of $10 and court costs. William McFarland and Boyd McLean were charged with larceny. They both pled guilty. McLean was given six months at hard labor in the county jail. McFarland was also sentenced to the county jail at hard labor, but only for 24 hours. H.B. Thompson was charged with wantonly killing the animal of another. He pled guilty and was fined $1 and court costs. William Robinson and Hezekiah Thomas were charged with entering a building in the night with intent to commit a misdemeanor. They were each found guilty and sentenced to hard labor in the state prison for one year. William McClune and W.E. Gregory were charged with carrying concealed weapons. They were each found guilty and were fined $1 and court costs. Hattie Palmer was charged with defamation of character of another. She pled guilty and was fined $5 and court costs. Charles Gauze was charged with larceny and convicted, but no sentence was given pending a ruling by the judge on the defendant's motion for a new trial. John Brandon was charged with obtaining money under false pretenses. The indictment was quashed and the charges were dismissed. James Hawkins was charged with assaulting Michael Himes. He later paid Himes $49 to drop the charges and leave. However, he was arrested in the town of Sanford two days ago, then immediately brought back Thursday by a deputy sheriff. Both men were ordered to be held in the county jail until the next session of court, with Hawkins on trial for making the assault and Himes for accepting a bribe. This court stands adjourned. And that brings us to the end of the police blotter and court news segment from July 17, 1894. Now, we want to be crystal clear. The things that you hear on the police blotter segment are not fiction, but history. And the people who are mentioned are not puppets of our imagination, but actual men and women who lived and laughed schemed, sinned, and suffered, and paid the price when their time came. Most of them without flinching. None of these people became famous or glamorous as criminals, and for nearly all of them, it was the only time their name was printed in the newspaper other than possibly their obituary. Perhaps you are someone who will profit by their example, or possibly gain somewhat in your knowledge of life and human nature. So, we hope that this short visit to some of the dank cobblestone streets and dusty alleys of yesteryear was interesting and educational for all of you out there. And, with that having been said, we would now like to express our deepest thanks to our guest narrator and guest voices on this police blotter segment. Please take a bow and tell our listeners a little about yourselves. Hi, I'm Rhonda Sigler-Ware. If you like my voice, wait, I've got more. Just ask me. If you would like to contact me for voice work, I can be contacted at rsiglerware at gmail.com. That's r-s-i-g-l-e-r-w-a-r-e at gmail.com. 
I consider myself to be a well-rounded actor with experience in community theater, radio, and audio production. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope to hear from you soon. Hey guys, this is Dina from the podcast, So This Is Me Trying. So This Is Me Trying is just a really fun variety podcast where we pretty much talk about everything and anything, music, movies, life. I have some really awesome guests that come on. Um, We're always down for a good laugh. So if you are interested in checking me out, um, I'm over at Apple Podcasts. I'm over at Spotify. I'm on anchor.fm. You can follow me on social media at SoPoCast. I'm also over on the Instagram at So This Is Me Trying Podcast. So yeah, come check me out and um, enjoy the ride. Hi, this is Jerry Kokich. Hey, if you want to get in touch with me, you can always send me an email at J-E-R-R-Y-K-O-K-I-C-H at yahoo.com. Yeah, you can always contact me via my website. That's jerrycokichvoiceactor.weebly.com. Thank you, everyone. You did a terrific job. Yes, all of you were great. Thank you. Now, before we say anything else, we want to mention that this particular police blotter story was sent to us by a listener, specifically a librarian in Florida with a secret identity. And as we have said in the past, she is sort of a superhero because we have promised not to reveal her true identity, with the sole exception of her chosen alias, Grace of Spades. And if you are a regular listener, you will know that she has contributed several other things to this podcast, which we have used or mentioned on past episodes. So, Thank you again, Grace of Spades. Absolutely. 100%. Thank you. We cannot thank you enough. Yes, yes, yes. Many thanks. Listeners, we would very much like to be able to tell police blotter stories from the 19th century newspapers of your city or town. So... If you have the time and ability, just send one to us by email, and we promise to use it as soon as we can. The address is ForgottenNewsPodcast at gmail.com. Next, we will now move on to our recommendations and advice segment. In this segment, we will each take a few moments to mention and talk about something that we think our listeners might be interested in hearing about or knowing about. It might be a book, a movie, a TV show, a podcast, an app, a game, a type of food maybe, a recipe, a new store, a product, or maybe a life hack. Who knows? It will always be something different. Also, we want you to know that we do not synchronize or discuss our comments or suggestions in regard to this segment before we record. That way, it's always a surprise for the listeners and for us. Now, on this episode... I will go first, then Jim, and finally Jessica. So my recommendation this week is going to be an oldie but a goodie. Um, I have been watching The Office again recently on Peacock. Um, If you haven't heard of The Office or seen it, you've got to be living under a rock. Um, But it's hilarious. And 
I can I can watch these episodes like three times or more and they are still funny every single time. Um it's been off the air for a long time. So you have the whole the whole series that you could just binge. Um so I definitely recommend doing that. Uh, you know, whenever you get home from work or whenever you have some free time. If you want to laugh, that's definitely the best place to do it. Listeners, on this episode, I am going to recommend a very good book for anyone with an interest in the American Civil War and its aftermath. The book is called The Last of the Blue and Gray by Richard Serrano. This book takes a look at the lives of the last several surviving veterans of the war, as well as the stories of three fake Confederate veterans. That is, men who had falsely claimed to have served in the Civil War. Each of these men had been paid soldiers' pensions by various states of the American South. They had made fraudulent applications in the 1930s, decades after the war was over, and no one was around to dispute their claims. But these three were not the only one. Evidently, a lot of old men in the hard times of the Great Depression had learned in one way or another that it was not hard to get a Confederate pension since the Confederate Army was not very good at record-keeping. However, if you applied for a pension and were turned down, that was often not a problem. Tricksters had learned to just apply again, but with an attitude that you were personally insulted by the denial and then complained about how could the pension office be so incompetent that they couldn't find your service record. And then, at that point, more often than not, your application would be granted. Now, in 1959, there were nationwide news reports, public commemorations, and even a congressional resolution honoring the passing of Walter Williams, who was then reputedly the last Civil War veteran. He was buried dressed in the uniform of a Confederate general. However, subsequent investigations and U.S. Census records have exposed him as a fraud and a con artist who swindled a veteran's pension from the state of Texas for nearly 30 years. The actual last veteran of the Civil War was Albert Wilson, who served in the Union Army as a drummer on the battlefield as a teenage boy. He passed away in 1956 at the age of 105. And if you would like to know more about him or any of the other last few surviving veterans or the stories of the fake Confederate veterans, I recommend that you check out the book The Last of the Blue and Gray by Richard Serrano. Hello, lovers and friends. It's Jessica, and this week I am recommending a Netflix original series called Getting Curious with Jonathan Van Ness. In this educational series, we explore burning questions about the world such as, are bugs gorgeous or gross? And are skyscrapers huge divas? If you are a fan of Queer Eye or just a fan of learning about things while being guided by a hysterical ball of joy, this feel-good educational series is for you. JVN is guided by experts to explore so many things we are curious about. And as an extra special bonus treat, 
listen to the podcast of the same name, Getting Curious with Jonathan Van Ness. And that is the end of the recommendation and advice segment for this episode. But listeners, if you have a suggestion for something that you would like us to mention on this segment, just send us an email. And if it's a good recommendation, we will pass it on to our audience. And thank you in advance for doing that. Now, moving along, listeners, we will now once again ask you to take a quick moment when this episode is over and go to Apple Podcasts, also known as iTunes, and post a five-star rating and review for the Forgotten News Podcast. Your ratings and reviews are extremely important, not only because they help bring new listeners and give us a boost in the rankings, but they let us know that you like what we are doing and that you want the show to continue with as many new listeners as possible. Hey, we want to be very clear. If you are a listener to this podcast, you are hereby prohibited from leaving anything but a five-star rating. <laughs> okay, and that is all that you need to know about that. Now, moving on once more, if you have any questions, input, or comments about this episode, or any prior episode, or any suggestions about the show, just send an email to ForgottenNewsPodcast at gmail.com. We love to hear from our listeners. So, all of your thoughts are definitely welcome and appreciated. We are also on Facebook and Twitter. Just type Forgotten News Podcast in the search box and you'll find us. It's super easy. Now. Speaking of Twitter, if you are a regular listener, you already know what I am about to mention. But, in case you are a new listener, guess what? You can contact and talk to me. My Twitter handle is at KitKaren, which is spelled at K-I-T- C-A-R-E-N. You can tweet at me with any comments or straight thoughts that you want to share. Follow me and I promise to follow you back. And if you would like to chat, just send a DM. And I'll be happy to talk about nearly anything. Comments, compliments, complaints. Hey. Whatever else, I'm all ears. The only rule is, don't be salty, creepy, or mean. And listeners, if you'd like to contact and chat with me about this podcast or anything else at all, you can reach me at XOXOJessicaXOXO on all social media platforms. And now, at this point, I am sad to say... We are at the end of the episode. No way. I know. I know. I know. I wish it wasn't true. But I just checked our notes for this episode, and we didn't write down anything else. Oh, well. Sorry. Listeners, I will just mention one more thing before we go. I know, we all know that life is a little rough for many of you out there. We are going through some very strange times, but I guarantee it's going to get better before you know it. So until then, I hope you're okay. Don't worry, 
And remember, history is no mystery. Goodbye. Thanks for listening and thank you for your support. Our next episode will be in March. Be sure to listen so that you can be one of the next 100,000 downloads. We hope you have a great day or night. Goodbye, everybody. This episode was recorded before a live audience of us. Thank you for listening to the Forgotten News Podcast. You will now be returned back to the present day, and we hope that we can count on you to join us for our next episode. Evil comes at leisure, like a disease. Good comes in a hurry, like a doctor. I got my COVID-19 vaccination, and here's why. This isn't about gimmicks or sentiment or what commercial I like. This is about facts. COVID-19 vaccines are safe and effective. Millions of doses have already been given in the United States, and these vaccines have the most intensive safety monitoring in U.S. history. When you need more information, use a reliable source like the CDC website and get the facts. Hey guys, this is Kit. Get vaccinated. It's cool.